0: This is Professor Allen, and welcome to The Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select mostly at random. Any book for my entire collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this third episode in the quarter bin, I'm looking at John Sable Freelance, number 44, from First Comics, with a cover date February 1987. John Sable Freelance, number 44, had a cover price of $1.75, meaning I acquired it at a very enticing 86% discount. The story, The Hard Way, Part 1, was scripted by Mike Grell. Art was by Judith Hunt, and Mike Manley. Sadly, this is the first issue of the title where Grell stopped drawing the issue, but that's what you get when you let randomness dictate your reading order. The issue starts in Eden's apartment, where John has arrived to take her to dinner. Their old friend Gray is there and the actor slash dancer slash choreographer is over the moon with joy in delight he spends the next four pages giving us all the exposition we need to begin this story a movie that gray appeared in six years ago called the hard way is finally being released in theaters it turns out that the late Paul Goddard star of the film is becoming his generations James Dean The movie is finally coming off the shelf because any film that that dead actor was in is now a guaranteed box office success. Maybe it's a turkey, Gray admits, but now it's going to be a money-making turkey. I'm 33 years old, John. If this movie hits, it could be one last shot for me. Along with the rest of the cast, Gray has been invited aboard the producer's yacht, for the film's premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. Gray sets up a meeting between the producer, Frederick Miles, and Sable. Miles reveals that only one print of the film exists, others having been destroyed in mysterious ways. It goes with me to Cannes, he tells Sable. I want you to come along and make sure that nothing happens to it. Sable points out that he can just make another print of the film for safety's sake, but Miles is a typical Hollywood douchebag. Think about it. The last existing print of the hard way. People will be lined up for blocks for a chance to see it. No critic will dare pass it off. Sable, to his credit, is mostly uninterested in the opportunity to spend a week with a bunch of Hollywood types. It's not until Gray drops the name of reclusive actress Deborah Lawson that Sable finally agrees to take the job. Sable greets the Hollywood elite as they arrive actors Katie Daniels, Glenn Forrest, and Bonnie St. Charles, as well as director Marshall Cooper and studio promoter Frank Harrington. Sable secures the film in a footlocker in his room, admitting that that may be not enough to keep anyone out. Well, it will slow them down a bit. He chats with Glenn Forrest, who has heard of Sable. And shows off his huge ring, a gold dragon with a green jewel at the center. I had the ring for years, but the director of Dragon's Gold spotted it and decided to work it into the plot. It's become my trademark. At dinner, Forrest continually pops Dramamine for his seasickness. Then Deborah Lawson arrives, and she immediately attracts Sable's attention. He kisses her hand and tells her he has always admired her work. To which Katie Daniels comments, wait till you see the film. You could admire a lot more of her. The cast spends the rest of the meal putting each other down, mocking each other's career prospects and or film talent. The careers of some are on the upswing and some are on the downswing. Jealousy, envy, and pride all find places at the table. As Harrington, the promoter, gets more and more drunk, his tongue becomes looser and looser. I'm just doing my job, but that doesn't mean that I have to be pleasant. His only kind words are directed to the actor, Glenn Forrest, although he couches the compliment within a mixed message. The world is about to see the finest performance of Forrest's career. Unfortunately, an image built on macho murder and mayhem isn't going to mix well with the role of homosexual writer in the hard way, especially when most of your fans drive Jeeps, chew tobacco, and drink beer. Suffice it to say that the cast and crew reunion, six years after filming, is anything but pleasant. The next morning, Katie and Gray go scuba diving off the side of the yacht. Gray asks Sable if he has any requests. Pepperoni pizza, Sable wisecracks, hold the anchovies. In the water, sharks circle the pair of divers. Katie notices and panics. From the deck of the yacht, Forrest fires his pistol at the shark. The gunshot brings Sable out on deck. Fortunately, he was already wearing his speedo with his gun in his hand. You'll never hit it with that, he says. Let me try the boomstick. Sable dives into the water, and because he is part James Bond and part Prince Namor, he manages to kill one of the sharks. The blood from that shark attracts more of the beasts, and in the frenzy, Sable leads the swimmer safely back onto the boat. Sable returns to find his room ransacked, but the print of the film is still safely locked away. This enables them to narrow down the suspects as Gray and Katie were in the water at the time. They weren't suspects anyway, Sable explains. They're the only ones who stand to gain from this movie. It's someone else, maybe several someones. That evening, Sable approaches, Deborah Lawson on the deck, and they chat, maybe flirt a little. He asks her why she, why any of them, are doing this. She explains that although Hollywood is all glitter and tinsel, the late Paul Goddard had a spark of real magic. He stood for a dream, and real or not, the dream deserves to live. Suddenly, a shot rings out. Everyone rushes out of their cabins. Gray confirms that the film is still safe. They do a quick attendance check. Someone's missing. Where's Glenn? Katie Daniels asks. Probably vomiting over the side, Frank Harrington opines. Sable tries Glenn's door and finds it deadbolted. He kicks in the cabin door and Glenn is inside, dead, with blood spatter on the cabin wall behind him. End of part one. Hi, I'm Nuke Choss, the host of Nutty Bites. And hi, I'm Tech, Nutty's regular guest. Or antagonist. Our podcast is like a call-in show where geeks get to debate topics about speculative fiction. We don't really debate. Sure we do. We debate topics such as lame superpowers, the best villains, and our favorite apocalypses. We're more like rant, rave, and then have massive nerd rages. People call in from all over the world, sometimes minor celebrities, and we've even had some supervillains show up. Do you ever notice that you never have any superheroes or good guys? I'm a good guy. Compared to what? Mm, antagonist, not really a guest. Nutty Bites, Nimlast.org. Yes, each week on the 20-Minute Longbox, I submit myself to the powers of randomness and review a title from my collection, completely at random and all within 20 minutes. It's the Super Compressed podcast for the decompressed written-for-trade age. Join me, Steve Lacey, each week at 20 minuteslongboxlibsincom or find me on iTunes. And we're back. The book, John Sable Freelance, tells the story of former Olympian John Sable. After the athlete's family was murdered in Rhodesia, he returned to the USA to become a freelance mercenary and bounty hunter, which is a lot better than freelance missionary, which is what I said in my first draft of this episode. He is in fact a freelance mercenary and bounty hunter. There is a secondary identity, but it doesn't come up in this issue, so we don't need to go into that here. But this issue is a bit of a change of pace for the title. For the first 26 and a half pages, this was a pretty standard bodyguard story, albeit Sable was bodyguarding a movie, and the location was exotic. But on the last page and a half, we learned that this is actually a murder mystery story, and once our cast gets on the boat, it does actually fit that template in retrospect. We have a limited number of suspects, all with different competing motivations. Mike Grell did a good job of misdirection of beginning in one genre and later revealing we were actually in another. He tells us there's one print of the movie, it makes a big deal about locking up the movie, constantly checking on the movie, and then we end up with someone dead. Maybe the whole last print of the film was just a MacGuffin, an excuse to get these particular characters together as a way of telling this particular story. We sometimes refer to comic books as cinematic or compare comics to movie storyboards. But the media are not the same, and the storytelling is usually different from one genre to the other. But here Grell really does try to make a comic book that feels like an action movie. There is a sort of movie motif on the cover, which is the only art that Grell did in this issue. Another example of this is the title splash page, which is part of page six and all of page seven this shows a giant explosion destroying a van, which had been carrying out one of the few prints of the movie. It was a comic book equivalent of a smash cut, which does fit the style of the story. The scene emphasizes the interaction of violence and publicity, a theme which runs throughout. Page 10 is also an out-of-context action sequence. We have a, a red sports car fleeing a blue car. The drivers of the autos are firing weapons at each other, and the chase ends, get this, with the red car flying through a billboard-sized movie poster featuring the exact same red car. The star of the film steps out of the red car onto a beach to wild applause the attention of the paparazzi in in Cannes. It's a one-page publicity stunt for another movie, not our movie, with characters not part of our story, but I think it was meant to transition us to Cannes, and to emphasize the recklessness of movie promotion, but I'm not sure. Like I said, that page did come out of nowhere, at least to my reading. The four-page shark hunt towards the end of the issue also had the feel of a movie action sequence, but it did seem a bit out of place in the comic book. Over those pages, we have no caption boxes and only three word balloons. I thought I was reading a comic from today, not from 26 years ago. Before talking about the suspects and giving my prediction for who the murderer is, I promise I haven't read issue number 45 yet, I do want to talk about Judith Hunt, who guest-penciled this issue. Hunt is an artist who had only a brief career in comic books, including this and the next issue of John Sable Freelance. The highlight of her career was her work on Evangeline, the first comics series written by her then-husband, Chuck Dixon. Evangeline is one of my all-time favorite short series, running just 12 issues from 87 to 89. Hunt did work on about 5 or 6 of those 12 issues. Now I paid cover price for those books when they came out, so I don't see much of a chance of talking about that series here on The Quarterbin Show. I do remember liking the art in Evangeline, and I have very fond memories of that book. But I admit to being disappointed when I saw that Mike Grell did not actually draw this issue. I am a big fan of his art, and I do think that the cover, which he did, was probably the best bit of art in the issue. But on to the mystery. I think the killer will turn out to be reclusive actress Deborah Lawson. I know that John Sable is supposed to be James Bond, but I still think that her crushing on him is a bit suspicious. And she has the motive to keep the film out of the public, as she appears nude in the film even though there was supposed to be a body double for that scene. Now, I'll be honest, exactly how Killing Glenn would help her suppress the film, I haven't quite worked out yet, but that's my pick. By the way, my daughter, who you may know as the host of the podcast Uncovering the Bronze Age, and co-host with me of Shortbox Showcase, all available at the same website and iTunes feed as this show, believes the killer is Miles, the douchebag Hollywood producer. She does acknowledge that this is the obvious choice, and to be fair, she skimmed the issue in about five minutes. The verdict on John Sable Freelance number 44 incomplete. I guess it was worth 25 cents, but I don't think I can know for sure until I read number 45. Now, I use the name Professor Allen for this podcast and other places online, and that's not just an expression or a pithy aspiration to pretentiousness. I actually am a university professor, and I feel like issue 44 was the first five pages of a 10-page research paper. I don't want to give it a grade just yet. Now, I'm not going to abandon all pretense of randomness and just roll into issue 45 next episode, as tempted as I am to do just that. But I'm instituting the new policy of modified randomness for the Quarter Bin Podcast. What I'm going to do is this. Next time a Mike Grell issue gets picked for the show, John Sable or Warlord or whatever... And there are about 75 issues by him in the Quarterbox database. No matter what issue of his gets picked, I'll replace it with issue 45 of John Sable Freelance just to finish up this story. I don't know when that will happen, but hopefully it won't be too long. I do want to know how this story ends, but I'm not going to read it until I'm reading it for the podcast. Well, that wraps up my coverage of John Sable Freelance 44, bringing episode 3 of the Quarterbin podcast to a close. And episode 4... I'll be looking at Thor, number 409, cover dated November 1989. No spoilers, but let me just say this. Hail Doom! Doom. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I am Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and "Short Box Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at geeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor Allen!